But my attention and our attention tonight is verse 21. So we'll read verse 20 and 21. And what I want to do is just go through with you over the next number of weeks. Because I was, I was needing my own soul fed with regard to the subject of Christian unity. And so remembering that Burgess had preached extensively on John 17, I turned there to start reading some of the sermons he preached when he got to this part of his series. So what I want to do over, as I say, God willing, the next few weeks is just bring to you Burgess's uh, thoughts on this subject of Christian unity and leave them, leave the thoughts with you. I've tried to not overly modernize. I <laughs> had to make some changes here and there, and I hope that I'll be able to read his remarks in a way that you can comprehend it just with the intonations and so on. But uh, I think there's much to be helpful for all of us here. So John 17, let's read verse 20. Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe in me through their word, that they all may be one, even as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. Amen. Let's seek the Lord. Our God, we gather this evening, and we come in the name of our Lord Jesus. O precious name that is to the believing soul. We pray, God, that that name, though it cannot be made any more sweet than it is, would become more sweet to our taste, and that we would revel in, rejoice in the Lord Jesus, the beauty of the Son of God, who loved us and gave himself for us. We thank thee, Lord, for saving our souls. We're here tonight because you've been so merciful to us. We are a people highly favored. Beyond description is our favor. That God would step into our lives, pull us out of our sin, pluck us as brands from the burning intervene in our wild career into hell is a mercy that we can never forget and will mark us not only for the rest of our lives, but for all eternity. Gracious God, we pray tonight that we might be like them, the meek and lowly on high who dwell with thee, that we would be humble in our spirits, we would be merciful in our frame of mind and in our actions, that we would be peaceable and that we would be full of divine love. Help us as we pray tonight. There's a perishing world, and as we have read here, the unity of the church is crucial in winning the world. So we pray, manifest it here in us and through us. Forgive our many sins. Bless everyone that's assembled Help us to pray. Remember those at home. Help them to pray, not merely to watch on on the service, but to seek the Lord 
in their own habitations. So come, we pray, and give us the instruction we need for our hearts in this hour. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we're looking at Anthony Burgess's thoughts, or at least the commencement of his thoughts, as he deals with the nature of Christian unity. That's where he begins. Of course, he progresses dealing with a number of aspects of Christian unity that we'll consider in the weeks ahead. So try to follow with me. Have the Word of God open before you. And uh, he's going to be focusing on that they all may be one. And uh, I hope that this is helpful to you. I may pause here and there. But he says, He doth not say that they may love and agree with one another, but be one. As if the church should be but one person. And as the apostle argueth, none ever hated his own flesh, Ephesians 5.29. So there should be no divisions, envyings, and differences amongst the godly, because they are one spirit, as it were. They should no more hate one another than a man doth himself. You see what he's doing there? He's, he's recognizing this unity, this, this organic unity that exists among the people of God. They all be one. They may not agree with everything, but they are to be one. And he comes into this matter of, of the benefit here of what Christ is praying for. And he says, That union amongst the godly is of so great necessity and consequence that Christ doth in their behalf principally and chiefly pray for this. Though in this unity be included grace and sanctification, sanctification Yet that which is expressly mentioned is their agreement. So he's praying for grace, obviously, sanctification, but especially their agreement, their, their coming together, un, union in himself and in the Father. To open this truth, consider one, that there is a twofold unity or union among the godly. And he speaks here of the invisible and the visible. Invisible unity is that whereby they being united to Christ, their head by the Spirit on God's part and faith on our part, do receive spiritual life, an increase in which some believers are compared to the several members of the body and Christ to the head. Because of that spiritual life and motion they receive from Him. So he's saying there's this invisible unity that exists between us all that the Spirit has worked in us and made us join together and then our faith, of course, is, is essential in that, that, of course, God has gifted to us. So we're joined together, brought into one body, which is invisible. And he said, this is the foundation of our visible union. And without this, though we may be outwardly of the church, like gathered together, yet we do indeed receive no saving advantage by Christ. So the first thing is to have this real unity that we have by the Spirit and through faith. Of this union the text speaks not, because it's such an union that the world seeing it may thereby be unjust to believe. So he's saying Christ's not praying for that invisible union. He's praying for the visible union, because it's something the world can see. So he's just pointing out the distinction and what Christ is specifically praying for. Therefore, there is a visible union. All right? He's not praying here for the invisible is true. Right? We're all joined together in Christ. But that's not what he's praying for. He's praying for the visible whereby believers do outwardly and visibly express their compacted nearness to one another. And so those particular churches of Corinth and Ephesus are called Christ's body, 
in respect of their external union as well as internal. For not only by faith, but also by the ordinances we have fellowship with Christ and with one another. Of this visible unity the text speaks, and this is made a special means to bring the world to believe. Whereas on the contrary, differences of opinion and sad rents and sex and religion is the only way to confirm men in their impiety and to think there is no truth and no religion at all. So again, he's just underlining this, this first aspect. There's a twofold unity, the invisible and the visible. And what Christ is praying for here specifically is the visible because he has a burden that the world will see the unique unity among believers. And of course, Corinth and Ephesus express this through their visible union together. In the second place, this visible union doth diffuse itself in many branches. And here he speaks of a number of different ways that we see this visible unity. One, there is a unity of faith and profession. When they all believe and speak the same thing, this must be laid as the foundation of unity, for unity in error and idolatry or false ways is not peace, but a faction or conspiracy. All right, this is where we begin. We're all saying the same thing about personal work of Christ and other key doctrines of the faith. The unity of faith is reckoned among the many unities the apostle mentioneth. He speaks here of Ephesians 4 verse 5, Philippians 2 verse 2. They are exhorted to be of one mind, and the apostle notably presseth this in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 10, that they speak the same thing, being perfectly joined together in the same mind and the same judgment. So that's the goal. That's the prayer. That's what the apostle was dealing with to the Ephesians, the Philippians, and the Corinthians. What a sad breach then hath the devil made upon God's people when there are so few of the same mind. He goes on to say, Yet unless it be unity in the faith, unity in the sound doctrine, it is nothing at all. So we have to agree certain things about the Christian faith, and that then presents a visible unity among the body. Secondly, there is a unity of affection and love in the heart, and outwardly one to another. Acts 4.32, it said, they were of one heart and of one soul. Those thousands of believers were as if they had but one heart and soul among them. And thus, in Tertullian's time, the heathens did admire at the love Christians had one to another. Our Savior makes it a surer sign of discipleship than if they wrought miracles. So this is, this is so important that the church shows her unity and that that unity is expressed not only in what we believe but in our affection toward one another. Thirdly, this union is seen in the public worship and ordinances which God hath appointed. As God said of man at first, it was not good, he should be alone. So what's true of every believer? He is not to serve God alone, to think that a private religion is enough. Therefore, you have the examples of the primitive Christians, Acts 2 verse 1, Acts 5 verse 12, how they met with one accord in one place, and that to have the enjoyment of public ordinances. They prayed together, the word was preached to them, they received the sacraments together, and the apostle, 1 Corinthians 10, 16, and 17, showeth how the sacrament of the Lord's Supper did declare their union and communion one with another. 
So you don't get to be a kind of spiritual vagabond traveling around yourself, uh, a kind of spiritual nomad where you don't have a home. When you do that, you militate against the prayer of Christ. You militate against the purpose of the church. Now, we move sometimes. People move. They travel. That's different than what we're talking about. uh, But here it is. We're to be part of a body. And he goes on then to say that in Hebrews 10.25, the apostle reproveth those whose manner it was not to assemble themselves together. Those who forsake the assembly of them, assemble, assembling of themselves together. This visible union of believers in church ordinances is their highest beauty and their chiefest advantage. Hence David professeth his ravishment herein. How beautiful are thy tabernacles, O Lord of hosts, and so on. So, again, seeing this is not just a New Testament thing, it's an Old Testament thing. A longing to be the public ordinances gathered together with the saints, reflecting that unity. We're going to be in heaven one day, we're all going to be together, and so this is a little window of it here on earth when we gather for even such seasons as this present moment. Fourth, this unity is seen in that public order and government which Christ hath appointed in his church. So it's to be seen through the order of the church as well. As God hath appointed some to be shepherds and to govern, so others to hear and obey, he hath commanded admonition. He said there must be admonition in the church. Why? Partly to play into this whole call to unity. And in some cases, sharp reproof, and where obstinacy, obstinacy is to cast out. Exon says, it's therefore a blessed thing as to have unity of faith and so also of order. That is to see every member of the church with its relation in a harmonious way as it's in the body. So there is this need for shepherding, the rebuke of saints at various times to maintain the unity that Christ is praying for. Fifthly, this unity is seen in the sympathizing that all believers have one with one another. And that in respect of mourning and rejoicing. So he's talking about the unity here as how we interact in our sorrows and in our joys. In respect of those that mourn, so we are to weep and mourn with them. We are to bear one another's burdens. We are to be affected with the church's calamities as being also of the body. As the apostle said, the care of all churches lay upon him, 2 Corinthians eleven twenty-eight. This discovers they are lively members of the body. For if Christ, though in heaven, was sensible of the persecutions done by Paul against the church, saying, Why persecutest thou me? How much rather should every particular member account the temptations of others as his own? I was just struck by that, you know, when I was reading that. I was thinking, because I've often made, and you've, if you recall, on many occasions I've spoke of the, you know, the love that the Lord has for us and the fact that you know, he, he feels that the attack upon his church as, as an attack upon him directly, signifying the, the, the body uh, joining, being joined to the head. But just thinking about it then, well, not just in terms of being the benefactor of that, but then also that we share in it and we have a mutual responsibility to feel as Christ 
felt toward his church. As it is thus for mourning, so also for rejoicing. There ought to be such an unity among believers that we are to rejoice in the gifts, graces, and good things that others have, as if they were our own. You know, this is the idea that they may be one. So there's this organic body, they're all one, that means we can all rejoice in the blessings that others may possess or have or experience, and and we shouldn't uh, think that in some way we're being left out. We're actually participating in their favor. If we are truly one, we participate in the favor that others experience. When God fills a man with the Spirit of God and uses him powerfully, all the church should benefit from that. No one should be upset about it. And yet, that's not what we always find. So he he then goes on to check this. He says, but oh, the self-love, the envy, the repinings that are apt to be in one godly man against another. The spirit in us lusteth to envy, saith the apostle. Even in believers, hence, are those daily exhortations against grudgings, murmurings, and envyings one against another. These are made the fruit of the flesh, because where the Spirit of God worketh and enliveneth, there is joy, peace, and long-suffering, all graces contrary to such unquiet distempers. So, there ought to be then this sympathy that is expressed. Sorrowing, with those that sorrow, mourning with them, rejoicing with them as well when the Lord favors them in some providence. Sixthly, this union is seen in their mutual striving together in promoting the kingdom and glory of Christ. They all have the same heart, the same shoulders, the same tongue to bless and praise God. They are like so many servants in the same house, all promoting and furthering their master's work. As the apostle, 1 Corinthians 3, saith, all the officers are one, he that plants and he that waters are one, because they agree in one end, which is to set forward the work of God. Thus it is here, though there be never so much variety in the gifts and graces and conditions of God's people, yet they are all one in this work. The glory of God is the end they all look upon." So, again, there's like one chief goal every member of the church has. We're all like desiring what? The glory of God. So when when we glorify God, when you glorify God, we all are achieving or striving rather after the same purpose. And that should keep us unified. So then, having looked at the various branches of that second point, this visible union doth diffuse itself in many branches. Then in the third place, he says, we are to know that the invisible unity doth extend itself farther than the visible. So the invisible goes farther than the visible. So that in this respect, there is a unity between all believers that ever have been with Enoch, Abel, Abraham, and all that of old ever were. We have a unity with saints long gone. This is believed in that which is usually called the Apostles' Creed. I believe the Catholic Church. Sometimes there was added the one Catholic Church. And this is believed and not seen. 
but by this it is that all the godly who have been, are, and ever shall be make up one body. All Christ's sheep will have one sheepfold, so that there is an invisible union where there cannot be a visible one. So when we are divided by time and place, yet we are still one in Christ. It's amazing, isn't it? Think about it. So that the very dust of dead believers, as it were, is in union with Christ. Their very dust belongs to Him. It's His. All of them, all of all, both spirit and body, belong to Christ. They're His. That's why they'll be raised. Their bodies will be raised that great day. And so we are joined to that same body, both the dead, the living, and those still to be called in. Or there is a sweet union that will exist between us all, does exist between us all. In the fourth place, concerning this visible union, you are to know some are of this unity both visibly and invisibly. Pardon me. Concerning the visible union, some are of this unity both visibly and invisibly, externally and internally, and in appearance. He says, Now such only who are both ways of this unity enjoy God, are indeed members of Christ, and receive benefit by Him, but the other are only in name and title. So the idea is that some who are just visibly in union only have a name and title. They, they aren't, don't actually possess the real thing. And he says they're like a withered branch in a tree or an artificial eye or leg, which though joined to the body, yet receive no life or nourishment thereof. Think it not therefore enough to be of this unity. Many have gloried and rested on this, that they are of such and such a church, yet their condemnation is greater than those of Sodom and Gomorrah. So again, I'm part of the visible unity. So what? If you're not part of the invisible, then, as he says, worse than Sodom and Gomorrah. And then he gives finally the fifth place, or rather, there's one more after this. The fifth place, this unity, therefore, when it's true and advantageous, doth first terminate on Christ and then descends to others. Hence it's added that they may be one in us. If you look at the text, one in us. There must be first an unity with Christ the head, and then it extends to other members, so that this is to be looked upon as the foundation and cause of all. There must be first an incorporating into Christ. He that is joined to the Lord is made one spirit with him. And then lastly, this union visible is not interrupted in some effects of it by distance of place. So here we are all joined together in one place. But what about those in a different place? What about those watching on? And he says, In regard of prayer, there everyone is remembered when the church is prayed for, so that the poor Christian who cannot pray for himself yet hath the prayers of the whole church of God. What a comfortable refreshing should this be to every godly soul. So even that unity is seen even visibly when we pray for others who aren't in our presence or maybe located far, far away from us. So those are the thoughts. I didn't want to go any farther than that, the nature of Christian unity. But it's a, 
It's a vital subject when you think about it. What is the church? Who are members of the church? By what means are they members of the church? And how important is it that the church reflects what she is in Christ? This is, this is not easy. I mean, when you think, you think about how difficult it is when you at times struggle with, is someone a believer? Like, is that person... You've, ha- you've had that. There are people in your life, you've asked that question, is this person even saved? Now, now put it in the position where you're having to make judgment calls on that at times. When you're dealing with matters of discipline, people in the church, and you're having to make a call. You're, you're trying to recognize what is true, what is true about this person. What is true? Because the office bearers who hold the keys of the kingdom, they are in such a place where they are to recognize what's true in heaven. So when someone makes a profession of faith as a true profession, there's no reason to to, uh, deny it, then the kingdom's open to them. They're welcomed into the church. They're embraced. When someone begins to live in such a way that it seems to deny that, then you have to reflect on earth what's true in heaven. These people don't belong. They're not in union with Christ. So they are to be shut out of the kingdom. And that's difficult, but that's the highest level of the struggle, let's say, when the church office bearers are trying to navigate that. But just generally ourselves, you're making an assessment of one another all the time. And if we can see that the unity that Christ is praying for isn't just to be hypothetical, it's not just to be able to say, well... <laughs> you know, if I asked you, you know, do you believe that we're all one in Christ? You say, yes. But, <laughs> then you do all these things that militate against, militates against the visible unity. And this is what Christ is praying for. He is not simply wanting the fact that theologically we can say we are in union But if theologically that is true, it has to be expressed. It has to be seen. If it's not, it's all all just a sham. It's it's not what Christ is praying for. So we, we pray for it. We pray for it here, first and foremost. We pray for it in our own hearts. Our own hearts pray along with Christ for this visible expression of unity. We want to, I mean, we, can, we can't be a more sure ground for our prayers than praying the very words and language of the prayers of Jesus Christ, can we? So if we were to come tonight and we were to pray, pray for the unity of this body, and then pray for the unity of the wider church, if it's recorded by the Spirit of God in the prayer of Christ, I think we're on good ground for for what the Lord would have us to be praying for regularly. So I've just been thinking on this myself in recent times, and I want to encourage us to put a particular focus on it tonight and in coming weeks, but we'll sing before we come to pray. Now we're turning to 469. 469. 